Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Got another good show. A great show today. We have a famous person. We do. Uh, we are so excited to, to welcome Jeffrey Breslow, who has come out with a brand new book called A Game Maker's Life. It is an important book, and you're all going to want to buy it when it comes out in August because it really is a first-person memoir of some of the most dramatic and dynamic times in the American toy industry. Jeffrey is a 1998 inductee into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame. He lived through a lot of history, and he writes about it really wonderfully in his book. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you. So let's start with how did you get into this business? Now, you tell us the story in the book, but I'm sure people would like to know because this is not a business, as Richard and I talk about all the time, that people sort of say, hey, I'm going to be in the toy business. But you kind of wanted to. Well, I never grew up, number one, okay? <laughs> and I still have it, quite of my age. Okay, that's the first requirement. But I was really a terrible student in high school, and I was uh, graduated in the bottom quarter of my class. I wasn't motivated. I went to small university in order to get a better start. I wanted to go to the University of Illinois, even though I uh, was an in-state student at the bottom of the class, they could still accept me at that time. But I went to Bradley and after a year and a half, I was flunking out and I went one weekend to University of Illinois to visit some friends. And I was interested in art. Art is the only subject I got an A in in high school. <laughs> that was it. And so I went to the new art and design building and I saw a display of industrial design. I didn't even know what industrial design was. It, it was an amazing display. There was a block of wood, like a big butter stick of wood. And they had the students had three cuts to make and then glue the pieces back together in a neat design and paint them with automotive paint. So these things were just brilliant. And I, I was just blown away. And it said instructor Ed Zagorski in the bottom of the display case. I walked a few steps there was a door half open. Ed was in there. I walked in and I was, you know, I was 18 years old. And I said, can you tell me about industrial design? And in 20 minutes, he changed my life. I mean, wow. he just, he was so amazing. And, and his, his whole thing is that design, industrial design is about form following function. Okay. You're going to design a chair. It has to be nice to sit in and then it can look beautiful. You know, and that goes for everything in design. Okay. Form follows function. And I walked out there and I said, wow, I want to be an industrial designer. Okay. I mean, and I, I studied, I got better grades to transfer. And then I started over again as a freshman, you know, so my folks weren't happy. I spent a year and a half learning how to drink beer and party. <laughs> Anyhow, it took me a year to get into his class because the freshman program is for all design sculpture, artist, everything. And, and Ed, the projects he did were about teaching her how to think. It wasn't about designing something. And he was, I could go through them, and there, there are a lot of them in the book. But I was just so enthralled with it. And then we did a toy project. And I said, wow. And it, and it was come up with a new toy, not design a toy, redesign a toy, but come up with a new idea. And I made these uh, little balsa wood model of little cubes that were kind of abstract X and Y shaped that fit together with moving parts, and it became a bench, a stool, something else. And I went, uh, I went to a kindergarten, and I took slides at that time, <laughs> Kodachrome slides, of my project. And in design, uh, all the projects are jury-graded, not just by Zagorski, but the all faculty of five or six teachers in that program, because it's very subjective. 
And my project came in number two. And I never came in number two on anything. You know, I was just blown. And number one was a little blue box with a, a probe and jagged shapes and a buzzer. And you put the probe in there and it buzzed, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, was John, this was John Spinello who made this box, and that came in oh. number one. And John was uh, went back to school. He was in the service in the Army. And so he was a little older than I was. And I said, John, what are you going to do with that? And he says, well, I have an uncle in Chicago who works for somebody by the name of Marvin Glass. I said, what do I do? He says, a toy design company. I said, you're kidding. You know, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, long and short of his, John graduated six months ahead of me. He went to get a job with Marvin. Marvin wasn't hiring. He gave him $500 for the box. And he sold the box for $500. It became the game operation, ultimately. (laughs) But at that time, uh, a semester tuition at the University of Illinois, if you lived in state, was $480 for a semester. So $500 a semester tuition was a lot of money. Anyhow, uh, I tried to get to see Marvin when I got done. Uh, He wasn't hiring. I ended up designing medical equipment uh, for two years. But all the time I was making toys and games and dolls and stuff, trying to come up with stuff to get hired by Marvin. I went back two years later and, uh, you know, April 11th, Tuesday, 10 o'clock in the morning, 1967, I got hired. Uh, yeah, you know, and and it was all that I dreamed of doing. I mean, and the fact that there was this company that did this was just blew me away. You know, I was very lucky that I knew early on what I wanted to do. And I was lucky to find this guy, lucky to get hired. And I was very good at, at being able to do this. So mm-hmm. I did it for 41 years and it was a fabulous career. Jeffrey, can you describe the environment at Marvin Glass that the physical environment of working there. When I got hired, I, I, you know, I walked out of there. He, he hired me. I said, see you Monday. He never showed me around. I never thought to ask, do I get vacation? Do I have an office? <laughs> I was so excited I got the job. But when I went in there, it was the shop. We had a shop in college. The machines were all painted bright colors, not gray. Machines are always gray. They were bright colors. It was an open environment. There was a model shop. There were designers upstairs. And it was quite, at that time, there were about 60 people working there. I had no idea. I mean, I didn't ask any of those questions. I just got hired and that was it. But it was kind of an open environment. And, and I learned early on that, that the importance is really coming up with ideas, okay? First of all, it was a week before I got the job, and I didn't know. So I spent all day at a Toys R Us <laughs> looking around, you know, just to get some inspiration, you know. And all that was new. I never had any kids at that time, nieces, nephews, younger. So I never bought toys. But the environment was uh, people helped each other. It it was open. You're working on something. Somebody came up and said, hey, why don't you try that? Why don't you, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't secretive among the people in there. It was secretive outside. Nobody ever got in. I mean, even Pauline, who was Marvin's secretary and, you know, everything. She never read her in the back. So, but but it was a wonderful place to work. Bins of toys, the parts. If you had an idea, just walk around and pick up some stuff and you'll come up with an idea. That's all. Marvin Glass himself famously never made a toy, but he is credited with creating many of the, the famous toys of the, of the 60s. What was it like working in the toy industry back then? I know you guys had to present to toy manufacturers. There was a lot of pressure to make a sale. And Marvin was the first person to initiate royalties for sales rather than outright sales. What was the excitement or the adventure like when you were pitching toys to to people like Milton Bradley? 
Marvin tried to manufacture toys in the 50s, and he was very unsuccessful. And he said, I'm not doing that again. And then he came up with the idea. He looked at the book business, the record business, and said, I want to do that in the toy business. It was very difficult. Creative people, I believe, respond to pressure. There's a deadline for your painting show. There's a, you know, a script to do. Pressure is an important part of creativity. It doesn't happen on its own. There's a client coming in next week. We don't have enough stuff to show him, okay? This is, this is the type of pressure. And, and people respond to that. The other thing Marvin did that was brilliant, if you were there a week, first of all, we didn't make drawings. We, if we had an idea, we built it. Because if you brought a drawing in the show, somebody, they say, I like it, make it. Oh, you know. So we, we skipped the drawing part and just made it. Okay, And there were very rough mock-ups at times. But what Marvin did that was brilliant was if it was your design, you walked in and pitched it to the vice president of a company, a, a big shot, and you're still, you know, brand new there. He, he always never took something away, showed it. He wanted you to get the experience. The first experience, the client said, don't like it. Next. OK. <laughs> the second experience. Fantastic. That's oh, wow. That's terrific. That's what motivates people. Being in that conference room, showing your ideas. It motivates a painter. It motivates a playwright. You know, I mean, you write a play, you see it on Broadway, you write another one. So the motivation, Marvin understood very well, okay? He couldn't build things. He wasn't handy, but he knew how to motivate people and knew how to inspire people. Now, the pressure being said, you can't pressure people every day, but if it went two, three weeks, things slowed down. So you had to have pressure, but not too much pressure. And he regulated that. And, and I, I did the same thing when I ended up running the company. You can't say to somebody, I'm going to give you a big raise. Go be more creative. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Your first toy, when you were very new at Marvin Glass Associates, was called Bucket of Fun. And you write about the process of coming up with that. And I, I think that's going to be must-reading for any toy designer. But talk a little bit about, about how that idea came around. We had bins of scraps of toys that were taken apart. There were bins of balls, uh, doll parts, cars, vehicles. And if you didn't know what you were thinking about, all of a sudden you grab some stuff here, stuff from there, and, and start playing with it. So there were these kind of uh, polyethylene balls, like ping pong balls, but much like play school balls, you know, kids. Mm -hmm. And there were bright colors. There was a bucket there. So I threw the, uh, the balls in a bucket. I grabbed the bucket. <laughs> I went up to my work area and I'm sitting looking at these balls. And I said, wow, wouldn't it be cool if the bucket could throw the balls around the room and then kids run and pick up the balls, you know? So that was the easy part. The, the difficult part was figuring out how to make the bucket throw the balls. That's how it happens. One of the things that, that I thought was really interesting was that Marvin didn't test his concepts with children. And we read all about this. We know we really read about all of this research right now about about how children are going to respond to something or what's appropriate and demographically. But you guys just put out ideas and, and saw if they work, kind of like Whammo did in, in, the, in the 60s as well. How come you didn't well, test with kids? Because you can't test with kids. You can't test anything with people. I mean, Steve Jobs didn't test anything. You know, he didn't test the design. He didn't test what he was making. He made something that people wanted, okay? And all the huge successes in the toy industry would have tested poorly, okay? I'll give you a number of them. Barbie in 1958. The mothers tested with mothers. A doll like that with big boobs and, you know, no, no. Absolutely. <laughs> Next one is, is Cabbage Patch. Ugly doll. The doll experts, Mattel, Hasbro, Ideal, all experts, okay? The company that made it never made a doll before. They didn't know it was ugly. They thought it was kind of cute. It was a huge success. 
Rubik's Cube, $10 for a puzzle. Never sell. Puzzles are dollar, two dollar. Nobody, you test that, I'm not paying $10 for a puzzle. I can go on and on. But the history is built on things that would have tested poorly. And, and you just had a feeling about it. And, you know, it's very interesting. The funny thing, we had a client come in from England. It was, it was he was a new client. And he, Marvin was talking to him. And he said to this client, you, you ever test your toys with kids? And Marvin looked him in the eye and said, I haven't seen a kid in 20 years, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. You know, I mean, the client was just aghast. He couldn't believe that you don't test your toy. So you can't test a movie. You can't test, a, you know, a, a play. You can, you know, I mean, a book, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything because people buy. I'm not going to buy that. But they buy something that they didn't put you a pet rock. Can you test a pet rock? You know, right. I mean, it just doesn't work. So we never bothered with it. We simply never bothered. Yeah. If it entertained us. OK, us young adults, kids, we thought it would entertain a kid. That being said, the creative world is built on failure, right. whether it's toy, movies, TVs, books, theater, dance, all built on failure. And you have to learn. The first le- lesson to learn is you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You can't do that in many other professions, lawyer, doctor, accountant. You can't fail. But you have to learn how to fail in the creative world. Ruben Glamer had a warehouse. He called it his warehouse to broken dreams. You talk about people passing on things like Mattel and and Mattel famously passed on Star Wars, but you passed on one thing in your career, which I thought is wonderfully written about. You didn't see the possibility in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Gosh, no. You know, I mean, nobody presented it to me. But but what happened is one of my designers, every designer we had had a certain outside interest, comic books, collecting things, you know, yeah, something, you know, I mean, in order to draw them into it. So this guy comes in and he said, there's this underground comic book, these two guys in New Hampshire writing, and (laughs) he started to explain it to me. And he said, well, there's four turtles that stand upright, Donatello, Michelangelo. And I said, you know, I started to say they're named after Renaissance artists. He says, well, it's Mickey and Donnie. I said, oh my God. Yeah. And they're (laughs) And they're trained by a sewer rat. I said, okay. I mean, it just kept getting worse and worse. I give Playmates a lot of credit. Okay. No, no other company would have made that. Mattel, Hasbro, none of the big companies. Playmate was a small company, Chinese-owned company. And they, they did a terrific job with it. I mean, nobody, no other company would have made that. I mean, it's, it was too bizarre, you know. And they liked pizza. I, I you know, and they had Ninja. <laughs> It wasn't presented to me except by one of the designers. And I said, I think that's a terrible idea. Let's not even think. That. And it went on billions. OK, movies, everything. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about a topic that's very top of mind right now, which is toy guns. And in the heyday of Marvin Glass, you guys made a lot of guns. You made a breakthrough gun, which was the the ricochet gun, which was the first one to actually have a ping ping sound in it. And and it was a huge hit. You made guns that were sold to Hubley, which did a lot of guns and was later sold to Gabriel. But there was a time when and and Marvin, at the time, the chase was to really get the, the best gun because kids were playing cops and robbers, Roy Rogers, Dale Evans. But Marvin changed his mind about guns when when John F. Kennedy was shot. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was that was actually before I got there. Uh, but 
I, I knew the history of the guns back in the 50s. You know, the things you mentioned, the ricochet gun and all that. Kids at that time grew up on cowboys. And that was what I grew up on. Hopalong Cassidy. I mean, all of them. Roy Rogers, uh, Long Ranger. So, but Marvin stopped, you know, when Kennedy was killed. And then over time, we started doing not gun guns, but shooting uh, cars and, you know, stuff like that. But we really didn't work on guns. Number one, it wasn't a big deal to do something like that. It wasn't fun. It was kids are going to use their hand and say bang, bang with a finger, you know, or a stick or anything else. There really wasn't a big opportunity in that category for us. You cite a, a Chicago Tribune article from 1968 where, where Marvin said that a manufacturer has the responsibility not only to profits, but also to the mental health and character of children. And I thought that was a really interesting point of view on how you design toys, because you really did look at what was fun and what was engaging and what, what helped the kids build character. Well, we did. It was a big part of it. And, and you know, first of all, children reflect their parents. So uh, girls at that time play with dolls, uh, boys, cars. And so we had we, we also tried to do things that would work with as many of our consumers. You know, once you say boy toy, girl toy, okay, half the consumer are gone. But games was fun because it was pretty much everybody. And so it kind of got separated out. Uh, but you looked at who's going to buy this and how can we entertain somebody? I mean, we, we felt we were in the entertainment business. That was our business, to entertain children. Learning is a byproduct. I mean, we did Simon because it was fun to play. It ended up in schools, in learning centers, other places that we had no idea was going there. But our, our primary motivation is that it was just fun. And that was my partner, Howard Morrison. You know, that was his, uh, his design, his idea. And Howard uh, is still around. He's in his 90s. And in my opinion, he's one of the great toy designers of all time. I did games. Ruben did dolls. Howard did dolls, games, plush, ride-ons, toys, vehicles. There, there isn't anything he couldn't do and come up with. He was brilliant. Did you have a particular eureka moment that is very strong in your memory? That was every time he came up with a new idea was that. <laughs> But it was. I mean, every moment was in the Eureka. I, you know, I got another idea. Okay. And a lot of ideas, you, you look at a week later and it's a terrible idea. Oh, go on another one. You know, I mean, you, you were kind of self-evaluating. You didn't, what we did not try and do is fall in love and spend too much time on one idea. All we had is time. That was our product. And if we didn't use the time wisely, we wouldn't do very well. So if you worked on something too long, at some point, the boss or Marvin or myself would say to somebody, that's not time well spent. Let's try something new. You can't fall in love with everything. You do to start. But then at some point, you kind of lose interest in it because all of a sudden you realize, well, it's not very good. I thought it was very good. But in looking at it again, so you do a lot of self-evaluation of ideas because you can't keep coming up with ideas that aren't going to sell ultimately. And, and it's a numbers game. I mean, we would log seven or 800 ideas a year that we would start working on. We'd probably end up building maybe 150. We licensed 30 or 40 and uh, six or seven paid for everything. It's like a movie studio. They make 20 films who pay for the 18 that don't make money built on failure. You created a lot of firsts in the industry. You were, you were a real innovator and a trailblazer. But one of the things that you did that's had amazing repercussions today is you were instrumental at bringing women into the toy design arena. After Marvin's passing and you took over as managing partner, 
you were very aggressive at bringing in women designers. When I was in school, in design school, there were no women at all in the program. I mean, it was today, it's very different. There were certain engineers, there were certain doctors, there were certain areas and professions where it was very difficult for women to get into. And, and I, don't, I, I can't sit and talk why, but that's what it was. But I said, here, half of our consumers are little girls. We got to, you know, there is another perspective that we need to do. One of the great doll designers was Ruben. <laughs> okay, he did most of the dolls, okay? We had another guy who's a partner now, his name is Roe, he collected Barbie dolls, okay? So he did a lot of work on Barbie. So we tried to get more women in, but it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. First of all, the most success we had was in industrial designers. Ultimately, there were programs in toy design. The Fashion Institute, oh, 25 years ago, started a two-year postgraduate program in toy design. And Otis in California right. had a four-year graduate program in toy design. So I went to these places and recruited. And I saw over the years, there were more and more women getting into the field. You just couldn't go out and say, I'm going to hire a woman. I'll try and find somebody. It needed somebody with that type of background in order to succeed. One of the greatest marketing people of all time was Jill Barad, who ended right. up running the brilliant. I mean, she, she started out, out there as a marketing person and worked her way up to chairman of the board. I mean, talk about success that, that she was one of th three women at that time out of 500 fortune companies that had a woman at the head of the helm. But she changed the whole dynamic of that company. Barbie was doing, I don't know, 500 million or something. And, and you know, when she got into it, it was one and a half billion. I, you know, I mean, it was uh, and she was she was brilliant. Does being a female make a difference whether you can do dolls or not dolls? I don't think so. You know, I was friends with her and people thought that, well, Marvin Glass and Associates has an inside track with Mattel. When Jill looked at something, she says, that's a terrible idea. Next. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we had no edge whatsoever. I mean, she was she was as tough as nails on her own people, tough on outside people. And that's why she was so successful. You created a, a famous game with a famous guy who later went on to become president, Trump the game. The, 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 the story about that in, in the book is, is really pretty amazing, but it was significant in that it was one of the highest royalties ever paid, one of the biggest advances ever paid. Can you tell a little bit of the story of Trump? And I, I don't want to steal the thunder from the book because it really is a wonderful read. Well, I was doing most of the games, okay? I mean, I had a knack for it. I didn't do many dolls or vehicles, but I just, it was easy for me with games, okay? And Ruben uh, was doing most of the dolls, and his office was right next to my office. Ruben's wife uh, was an enormously successful retailer. She had like 10 stores in Chicago, in high-end stores, Louis Vuitton, Montblanc, Christophe, Benetton. I mean, she was a dynamo. And in 1987... She opened her first store in Trump Tower, okay? So now Ruben brings the book, Art of the Deal. He puts it on my desk. He said, you think you can make a game here? Nina thinks she can get us a meeting with him. I said, you're kidding. She don't know. And, and if you knew Nina, it was a very good chance she could make this happen. She was that kind of woman. So I made a, you know, a board game and, you know, in, and we made a box. We never make a box. And we had his picture on there. So we really went all out for this thing, even before we had a meeting. And then I had an idea for the line. It was Trump the game. And then it said, it's not whether you win or lose, but whether you win. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, we were very excited about this. I mean, there were boxes. You put money in boxes. The smallest bill was $10 million up to a $100 million bill. No monopoly. 
we end up getting a meeting. And Ruben and I fly to New York. And I, I said, I want to stop at the bookstore. And I stopped at the bookstore. I got three copies of his book. He said, what are you going to do with that? I said, I don't know. We'll see how the meeting goes. I got an idea. So now we get up to Trump Tower. And it was a Tuesday, 2 o'clock meeting. And uh, this was 1987. And uh, we're sitting in this big uh, waiting area and Audi walks in the elevator, nods to us and walks into the office. So I said to Ruben, but I can't tell us he's not here. I don't know, you know, I mean, two o'clock on the money. We're in his office, not not 30 seconds after two two o'clock. We're in the office and he's sitting at his desk with his jacket on. Uh, Oh, we were told ahead of time. He's a germaphobe. Don't shake his hand. He won't shake your hand. Okay. (laughs) so anyhow, in the meeting is Ruben and I, uh, the guy head of retail and his attorney. So he said, hello, let's see what you got. You know, So he had a small conference room table. I set it up. Uh, I opened the box up. He, I got a big thumbs up. He liked it. It's not whether you win or lose, but whether you win. I opened the box up. I handed him a $100 million bill with his picture on that, that he liked. And then I rolled the dice. He said, I like it. What's next? Okay. <laughs> I mean, he didn't, he didn't play the game at all. And I said, well, I'm going to show it to you know some of my clients and I'll come back to you with a deal. And I said, would you do me a favor? He said, what? I said, autograph some books. So he takes out his big felt pen. He sits at his desk. The first one was the president of Milton Bradley. The second one, president of Parker Brothers. Third one, president of Mattel. I got a big thumbs up from him. That was the end of the meeting. You know, we walked out. I called Mel Taft, who was the senior vice president of Milton Bradley and a great client of ours. I said, Mel, I got Trump. He said, I'll be there tomorrow. So he got on the plane from East, from Massachusetts and flew to Chicago just to see the game. Okay. And, you know, he loved it. And I told him, I said, this is no, not a regular deal, which is 5% of wholesale. I said, 12%. He says, come on. I said, it's Trump. And then I said, advance in a game like this, maybe 50,000 advance. I said, $500,000. He says, come on. I said, it's Trump. I was out of my mind. Okay. He said, I got to talk to the chairman. I got to talk to the president. I can't make this kind of, I said, okay, I won't show it to anybody else until I hear a no from you. So uh, he goes back. He calls me the next day. He said, he starts out. He said, well, everybody thought it was way too expensive and everything else. I said, okay. He said, but we got a deal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I called Howard Rubin and we're jumping up and down like little kids. I mean, it is the biggest deal we ever made. Anyhow, I mean, it wasn't the biggest success ultimately, but in terms of opening deal, now I call Trump and uh, I set up a meeting and I, I fly back. I walk in, he's there by himself. No lawyer, no, no manager of retail just me and, and Trump. And he said, what's the deal? <laughs> okay. So I told him that. And before thinking, I pointed to my chest and I said 50. And I pointed to him, I said 50-50. He said, I don't do 50-50. And he pointed to himself, he says 60-40. I said, okay, we got a deal. He could have said 70-30. He could have said 80-20. Right. I would have done 80-20. I would have done any less than that. But he knew that without him, I had zero to sell. Okay. He said, what do I need to do? I said, it'd be great if you can come to Toy Fair. This was in the fall of 87. He said, I'll be there. That was in the February of 88. I said, it'd be nice if you can go up to East Long Meadow when they're coming down out off the assembly line. He said, I'll be there. And he did. He said, go talk to my attorney, tell him the deal. And that was it. And he came to Toy Fair and he came up to East Long Meadow. And then nine years later, I did the Apprentice game, which was a much better game. But it was too expensive at the time. It had his voice in there. He record. I went to him with a, a tech and a computer, and he recorded the voice. You're fired. He did all that. So my experience with him, everything he said he would do, he did. He didn't hold me up. 
every meeting was exactly on time. I walked away and said, wow, okay. <laughs> Did I think he'd be president? Never. I, it never entered my mind. Earlier, we talked about toy guns and we talked about violence. And one of the major events that happened at Marvin Glass Associates was a shooting. And you narrowly escaped being a, a victim of that as well. Well, this is an employee who worked for us for seven years. He worked for another company uh, that my partner worked for and brought him in. He was a electrical engineer. He was a quiet guy. A couple of the model makers knew he had guns and like go shooting, but you know, a lot of people do that. I mean, so there was no indication there was a problem at all of any sort with him. Marvin was gone by this time. It wasn't Marvin who was, Marvin died a year and a half before this, okay? And Anson Isaacson uh, was an old crony of Marvin. Marvin brought him in and he was kind of the managing partner. So there were nine, nine of us at this time. And we all had meetings typically every morning to update on what's going on and everything else. Uh, the meeting broke up about five minutes to 10. And it was just Anson, who was Anson Isaacson, the managing partner, Joe Callen, another partner, and myself in the office. And the phone rang. This is Marvin's office, big, huge, beautiful office. So the phone rang and Pauline said, it's Jim Salem. And I didn't quite recognize the name. And she said, he called you a week or so ago about Evil Knievel. I said, oh, okay. And he had a few more questions. I said, okay, put it in the office across the hall. Now, I could have just as easily said, take a message, I'll call him back. But Jim was very nice and I enjoyed the conversation. So I left that office, walked across a hall to another office, a small office. And I'm talking to Jim and I hear the shots. And I, I didn't, I didn't think it was gunshots. It was just a noise, bang, 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 bang. But I didn't say to myself, that's, that's a gun. I didn't think about that. Anyhow, I put him on hold and I left and I walked back across and the back door was wide open. And I know I closed it on the way out. I don't know why. So it was a little unusual, but I walked in and, and he had shot Anson in the face with a nine millimeter and Anson was still in the desk chair sitting there. And he shot Joe, who was on the couch. And Joe looked at me and fell forward. And Joe died on the way to the hospital. And I ran out the other door. I mean, the only thing I thought somebody had come in from the outside. I mean, there was no way that I thought anybody, uh, this was an inside type of occurrence. But what happened is, is I went out, he went in and he thought he'd have nine guys in there to shoot. There were only two. He went out, went in the back, and I went back in. So it was, you know, I missed him twice coming and going. And then I ran out in front screaming, and Pauline uh, did, was quite a ways, and she didn't hear it. And then people started coming from the other side screaming about the shooting, and that's when I realized it was still going on. Anyhow, he went down the corridor and, and shot people. He shot his, you know, he shot Kathy just sitting at her desk, and then he shot his friend across the hall, and then... He was in front of his own office and he shot himself in the neck and then in the temple and died right there. You know, it's the kind of thing you, you read about all the time somewhere else, you know, and it would, ours wasn't the first one. But, you know, it certainly has gotten much more aware because of, of TV, of other media and stuff. But it, it's something that, you know, happened someplace else, but it happened to us. I ended up running the company, which I didn't want to do. I was the youngest one. And anyhow, it was really by default. Nobody wanted the job. And I... And I was the one who went up with it. I was scared out of my mind. And then to come back to work in a toy design studio and, and put the pieces together was not easy. And I was able to find somebody over the weekend that uh, had experience with group disasters, plane wrecks, and that sort of thing, and came. And, and what he 
said to everybody is that you have to talk about this over and over and over again. Where were you? I was in the bathroom. I was here. I wasn't, you know, why weren't you killed? If somebody doesn't want to talk about it, they're going to have a much harder time ultimately dealing with the tragedy. But, but his advice was something that I would not have thought about. You have to talk about it. It's still hard to believe that happened. And every time you see something else on the news, it just brings everything back. And then one of the young designers that worked for us, uh, his, the bullet severed his spine and he was in a wheelchair. And he worked for us till we closed the place down and we set up a fund for him and his son. But every day for the next almost 12 years, there was somebody in a wheelchair working in our place. So there was, it never, it never went away and it never goes away. After that, you did continue with the company. You did have many, many major successes. Crisscross Crash in 1978, Polly Pocket in 1990, and many, many more. I want to end this on a high note, though, because there are a lot of people who aspire to being toy designers today, perhaps more so than in years past, thanks to, as you say, FIT and Otis. What advice would you give to a young toy designer who's just starting out? Well, I think, first of all, you, you, need, you need schooling like you need for anything else. And there is schooling today. And I think that's, that's the first step. First of all, you have to not grow up. You have to still love playing with toys. And, and you have to be curious. I mean, curiosity is, you know, is the key about everything. And still the ability to play with toys and enjoy games and get down on the floor. And, and, and a lot of people do that. I mean, sports does that to people. But... I, I would say get an education where you get a background. You have to learn how to build things yourself. You can't just have an idea and make a drawing. You have to be a builder in order to be a toy designer. Jeffrey Breslow, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. The book is called A Game Maker's Life. A Hall of Fame game inventor and executive tells the inside story of the toy industry. It's a fascinating read. It is really an important first-person perspective on toy history. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Well, thank you for taking the time to interview me. I greatly appreciate it. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.